All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I also write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and uh, Chen Lin, a partner of mine, uh, writes a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen's on vacation now down in South America with his family. He'll be returning in a couple of weeks, I guess, from now. But uh, in any event, we do want to get him on our show again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, to sign up for either Chen's letter or mine, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Or you can call our office here in New York at 718-457-1426, Do want to thank each of you for listening, uh, making this show one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And uh, for sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter under J. Taylor Media. We do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are TriMetals Mining, Coral Gold Resources, RN Resources, Brazil Resources, and Columbus Gold. We do have a very busy schedule today, so we're going to hop right into the show, uh, talk about the show. I've titled it today, Can Helicopter Money Overcome Global Deflation? And John Rubino will be with me at about a half past the hour. Michael Oliver is with me now, and David Wolfen will be joining me after our first commercial break. The major question facing markets now is whether this uh, the global monetary mess created by Keynesian economists will be resolved by way of deflation, a deflationary implosion, or an in- hyperinflationary wipeout. Um, of the existing order and the mess that's been created by these guys. Well, no one has remained as objective with respect to that question as John Rubino, and John will be with me uh, at about half past the hour. In light of Brexit, insolvent Italian banks, recent warnings from Alan Greenspan and Michael Oliver's work suggesting a final blow-off in the T-bond market, I will uh, definitely want to ask John if he agrees with Greenspan's recent concerns about inflation as voiced on Bloomberg a few weeks ago. David Wolfen uh, will be with me uh, to talk about Coral Gold. That's a company that he heads up and uh, one that is starting a new chapter in its history. Coral just sold a property uh, to Barrick Gold for uh, 15, almost 16 million U.S. dollars, leaving it with cash on its balance sheet that actually exceeds its current market cap. And it has a royalty in that property and other properties as well. So uh, at its current price, it seems to me that Coral provides good upside potential, assuming, as I do, that we are in a bull market of some duration here for gold. And, of course, uh, we want to get Michael Oliver's thoughts on that again, as always. 
theories about the economy and where markets will go are all good and dandy, but most of the time theories don't work out exactly as we expect, or if they do, the timing is way off. So as a, uh, the old adage is that timing is everything certainly makes a lot of sense. At this point in time, the direction of various financial markets certainly, in my view, look uncertain. And so I'm really glad that Michael Oliver could join me. Again, thanks for being with me, Michael. And we, wanna, we well, want you to help to us. Back, always good to have you and uh, always good to know uh, you, you do help me feel somewhat more certain about things after I speak with you. And that's one of the reasons I like to have you on uh, almost every week whenever it's possible. Well, you talked about the T-bond market, the 30-year U.S. Treasury. It's probably the biggest and perhaps the most important market in the world. Uh, I would say, and you've been talking about the potential for a blow-off here in the T-bond market uh, that could reverse, I believe, uh, what you, a uh, decades-long bull market. Um, do I have you right on that, and, and do you still see it that way? Yes, uh, you got me right on that. Um, I, I would lump into that also the German bonds, which is a 10-year maturity instrument, mm-hmm. um, and considered, you know, safe, just like U.S. T-bonds, yep. T-notes, so forth. And uh, the JGB, the Japanese government bonds, mm-hmm. uh, which is also it's traded in futures as well. All of these are futures-traded markets. So I'm mm-hmm. focused on the 30-year futures, U.S., German bonds futures, and JGB futures. And I've run reports on them for my clients, and uh, the, the technical situation in all three is very, very similar. So that reinforces my concept that if the T-bonds are in blow-off, and I think they're in the early part of it, my only problem is when does that turn down? And I don't mean a problem. It's something I have to measure for. And so mm-hmm. I'm looking at all time scales of, of, of my metrics. I'm not just looking at long-term momentum. I'm looking at intermediate stuff, uh, the kind of stuff that shifts trend every three to five months, for example. Because, frankly, any downturn now could be lethal. That it was mm-hmm. something of, of a modest scale could morph into something of a large scale, uh, like one domino hits another type thing. But what's interesting is that the JGBs, the bonds, and the T-bonds all are in basically the same technical condition on their long-term charts, which indicates they're in a blow-off, and two, they're in decent proximity to intermediate turn, uh, intermediate term downturns. So mm-hmm. if they sneeze too much on the downside, they could start breakage that direction, meaning mm. that the blow-off is ending. Now, it's interesting because their clocks are a little different. The JGB has been in blow-off for six months, by my measure. The U.S. Uh-huh. Treasury bond's only been in a blow-off above the point of acceleration for two months. So there's a slight bit of difference there. Um, so that's the only issue of confusion for me. It's not that we're in blow-off. That's pretty clear. I mean, it's vertical upside action as opposed to a gradual bull trend. It means it's verticality. Two, the implication of that is when it fails, it fails badly. Blow-offs do not end gently. They end with collapses. Uh, not all bull markets end with blow-offs, but the ones that do end badly. Um, and all three are set. All three of these markets are set for a downturn of significance. They're not, not near the trigger numbers right now, but, but the trigger numbers are definable. So mm-hmm. it's simply a matter of momentum structural analysis continuing to monitor these three markets as a trio. All right. So you could see a real, I guess, global systemic yes. issue here. If one goes, would you expect one could go without the I, others I going? I think all or? three go. Yeah, I think all uh-huh. three go, and these are the uh-huh. three, quote, safest debt instruments around. Now, two of them are in negative rates. Yeah. <laughs> zero. Zero. So uh, only the U.S. has a 2, 2% plus uh, yield on its 30-year. 
but which is which is still very low, uh, and it may get under two before it's over with. But you know, I don't I don't see us going to negative rates on the thirty year. Uh, but uh, regardless of that issue of the difference in the rates, their their technical structure is uh, especially on momentum, long term and intermediate is basically their overlays of each other. So I'm very happy with that because what that does it makes my job easier in terms mm-hmm. of declaring a downturn because I'll I'll I will have a chorus. Not a, not a soul singer, but the three right. guys. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, yeah. it maybe makes your job easier, but I, I just have to think that what we're talking about here is something that's very, very big, uh, potentially mm-hmm. something that's very big in terms of the other markets as well. And we ha- have to ask you about the dollar in light of the T-bond. If the T-bond goes, what does that do to the dollar? You'd think the dollar uh, might I'm, get weaker. I'm thinking well. the, the dollar goes down. Uh, the dollar rally now has gone a little further than I thought, but it doesn't change anything. Really, the dollar and the euro, which is the two big biggest forex markets out there, the dollar index I'm talking about, of which 57% of that index is comprised of the euro. Those are the two deadest markets on the planet this year in terms mm-hmm. of volatility. Uh, in fact, if you could draw a line sideways, they just basically breathe either side of it. Uh, the dollar right now at 97 area is about in the middle, slightly maybe in the upper half of, of, of last year's whole range. Uh, and it's, it's a very unvolatile situation. I think the dollar rally, which is again right around 97, if it slips in the next week or two down to about 96 and a half on a weekly close, so I'm talking mm-hmm. about a half a point, uh, I think it could be over. The, the rally that's been underway for, well, actually, <laughs> it's very interesting in this regard. The dollar index made a significant low in the same week that the S&P made its mid-February low. Huh. So to some extent, the dollar advance, which is zigzaggy, is in sync with the upturn in the S&P. So consequently, if the dollar turns down and the euro turns up, um, which would be the obvious relationship, uh, that may have implications for the S&P at that point in time. Right. Interesting. Well, we don't... Yeah, yeah. Well, we'd love to hear hear more about the S&P, Michael, but uh, time is limited. My engineer tells me I have less than two minutes. So, gold, um, how is that looking now? Still still bullish as ever? You're still looking for high 1400s? Yeah, now there's nothing really new that I can add that I didn't say last week and the week before. Really, it's it's stuck in the middle of uh, of, of a first major wave of upside. That wave began at a breakout level of 1140 to 1160 in February by our metrics. Uh, and right now, this congestion in the low to mid 1300s is next to meaningless. It's just congestion. The next major resistance and first major target of a longer-term bull market, is between 1470 and 1540. It's a broad zone, but we're not there. So, mm-hmm. frankly, I view this as just uh, sideways congestion um, All right. for the last few weeks. And, it, it's, and by the way, it's done that. Uh, for the people who believe that the dollar must be weak for gold to go up, they're wrong. I've never yeah. bought into that argument. The dollar has right. not been weak, and yet gold has been quite strong. So. Right. Yeah, so there you can uh, yeah. put that theory aside for sure. Well, you know, if we get a period of congestion here, Michael, I think it probably gives us a, a bit more time. Those folks that might have felt they missed the train as it pulled out of the station when they uh, when it come to buying the gold shares uh, have a little bit of time now maybe to, uh, to to load up before the next move, huh? So I think so. that's we a good... We just had a $3 pullback, and I think you... 
probably uh, in this general area on the GDX, for example, the 2728 area is a reasonable place to be looking. Uh, our buy signal was at 1550, but I mean, that's history. So uh, yeah. now you, you have to buy secondary dips, and, and this $3 mm-hmm. pullback from the recent high is reasonable, you know. Yeah. Good. Well, okay. Well, that that uh, really is a good way to segue into our next segment with David Wolfen because uh, he's going to talk about coral gold. Uh, so, well, thanks again, Michael, for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again next week, hopefully. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Bye-bye. Well, folks, uh, we are going to commercial break, but when we come back, David Wolfen will be with me, and he's going to talk about Coral Gold. That's a name I've known for many years. Uh, they seem to be on to a, a new chapter in their corporate history. It's very interesting, so I hope you'll stick around and listen to David Wolfen. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rea Uranium project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. Coral Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barrick's Cortez Pipeline operation. Coral is well positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again David Wolfen. David's been with me um, several times in the past uh, talking about um, Vino Silver and gold mines. That's uh, it's a favorite of mine. It's a company that's done very nicely. It's growing. It's producing uh, more silver and uh, will soon be producing some gold, I believe. But we're not going to talk to David today about... Avino Silver and Gold. We want to talk to him about another company that he heads up called Coral Gold Resources. Uh, so, uh, David, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jay. Always good to talk to you, but this is really an interesting time because I, I have a lot of questions that I wanted to ask you about off the air and just didn't get around to it until now. But um, I should tell our listeners that your stock trades in Toronto under the symbol CLH, and you can buy it down here in the States as I have under the symbol CLHRF. Uh, there's 47.8 million shares. I saw a price of around 27 cents U.S. today, and a market cap of about 13 million dollars. If my arithmetic is uh, is right, does all that sound sound kosher to you? Yes. Okay, so I've got those numbers right. Well, David, uh, the it's big lot, news. Yeah, about 13 million U.S. and the 13, shares and the yeah. shares issued will be reduced when Barrick oh. returns the shares they own. Yeah, I want to get to that. Um, yeah. In fact, I think you're going to be down to something like 43.65 million shares. I mean, in this day and age, to have companies reducing shares instead of uh, watching them grow exponentially is really an achievement in a sense. Uh, and we want to get to that. But so, you, the big news here, of course, is that your sale of the Robertson property in Nevada to Barrick Gold. Uh, can you talk about the Robertson Gold property? Uh, your father headed up the company for many years. In fact, I traveled, was on that property with your dad, uh, oh, maybe a decade or so more than that ago, back. Um, and it, it borders a Barrick project, a very big one there. So talk to us a little bit sure. about the Robertson Gold property, what Coral has done over the years with it, uh, sure. and, uh, and then why are you selling it, and what are you getting for it? Okay, so... I mean, uh, Avino, or Coral, sorry, was uh, incorporated in, in the mid-'80s. Uh, a prospector approached my father, and he was a famous prospector, and he was uh, tinkering with heat bleaching in this area. And, and so my father acquired it, and, and over the last several decades, we've had various partners from Amax Gold and Placer Dome, and um, there's probably been about 20 to $25 million spent on the property, and um, there's a, a resource of 2.7 million. Um, um, some of that is oxidized, some of that is sulfides. So I <clears throat> basically, you know, from what I've learned from Avino is building a mine, <laughs> it takes a lot. So sure. our company, our market cap was basically decimated during the downturn, and that was because we had no news flow. The Bureau of Land Management required us to do an environmental assessment because we operate under a plan of operation, and this is not considered an exploration property, there was an old leach pad on the property, so they oh. hold us to a higher standard. So oh. during the last four years or so, we were studying the bugs and the bunnies and the migratory habits of the birds. So the stock it went down you know, to where it is. So um, last year, I, uh, we got the EA approved, and I, I did a deal with Barrick, and they, they, they did some drilling on the on the what we call the Goldridge claims, and then they decided to terminate the agreement. This is before gold woke up. So they yeah. were cu- cutting budgets, and they sure. hit five feet of an ounce at death, but they decided that was too small at that time. <laughs> 
So I asked them, I said, what would it take to put this into production? I said, I've got a five-cent story. How am I going to raise $100 million? Because that's yeah. what our PEA calls for. And yeah. it's $13.50 gold to get a 15% IRR. So, but for them to do it on a grand scale without the CapEx makes that IRR go way up. So mm-hmm. they looked at it from internal uh, point of view. And sure. they looked at they have a long-term uh, forecast of gold at, using 1250 and yes it's above that now but they can't look at current they they set it every year and uh, at the end of last year their long-term forecast was 1250 and they publicly stated they need things um, projects to meet their 15% hurdle rate at any stage of development so they went through all the data and all that information, and we started negotiations about six or seven months ago, and we got to where we are now. So the deal is they're giving we, – we talked them up. I mean, they, they, they offered us a lot less than what we announced. So we've, we've got um, about $15.75 million, uh, U.S. coming in. Mm-hmm. We asked them to return the shares that they own. So that, in effect, makes this deal more valuable if you look at the percentage on it. And the royalty, and, the, and originally the royalty was set using their 1250 forecast, so they, they couldn't afford to give me a bigger royalty um, because, I would, again, I, I asked them to look at this. So this had to go up the, the category um, or the ladder to the business development committee. So yeah. <laughs> the guy I'm negotiating with, he goes, if you keep asking for more, it won't meet a hurdle rate, and we can't recommend it to our committee. Yeah. So, we got it up to as high as we could. We put a, uh, a scale on the royalty, so it ladders up. Uh, every $200, it goes up, and uh, we can get up to 2.25%. Uh, and and, and this, is, uh, this could be a company maker. Um, if you look at our PEA, we knew it was going to take six or seven years to build a mine. So how would Coral be able to do it on its own? You know, sure. there's, there's just no way. There would be so much dilution to the shareholders. Sure. And they said they'll have it up and running in five years. And that's why mm-hmm. we put in there a trigger where they have to pay an advance royalty starting in, in five years. So it mm-hmm. puts pressure on them. And they said if they can get it up and running sooner, they will. But because of the environmental the impact statements they got to do, yeah. it'll take time. Mm-hmm. So they're going to start uh, covering uh, Robertson in their... MDNAs and quarterlies, which I think is coming out tomorrow or the next day. And they're not going to say much for this year, but it'll make it in the budget for next year. So they're going to go gangbusters. They're going to, you know, do everything required to put it in production. So we're, we're, we're very excited. Look at, look at what the royalty on South Pipeline did for Royal Gold in 1997. Oh, that's true. That's exactly right. They're $100 stock, you know. Yeah. So as the market watches the development on the Robertson and they start to get a handle on what this royalty could be worth, it could be a company maker. Now, yeah. how do we get from here to there? So it's going to take you know, some time for the project to be developed. Um, once they announce it in their financial statements, they're obligated to let the public know about it. So, um, and also, they, they have a, a technical report on CEDAR, which uh, covers the whole pipeline, Cortez Hills, Gold Rush area. I tell, I tell everyone, go read that report. There's some fantastic information in there that talks about this whole area and what the potential is. It, it's, it, it's enormous. And we have some other properties. We've got the enormous SAS, the JDN, the Eagle Claims. They're surrounding this area. The Eagle Claims are between Robertson and Fire Creek, which is Klondex. 
The JDN claims adjoins Hilltop. That's about a two to three million ounce deposit. The barracks now drilling, and and um, I found that out because in that technical report it says they're drilling Hilltop. Uh, and the Norma Sass claims you could almost throw a rock into the pit of the old pipeline mine in Gold Acres, but it's right on the doorstep there. So we've got some strategically located projects that we're, we're, we're dusting off, we're looking at, we're probably going to do some exploration on it. And then we're getting um, submissions coming from all across the world, and, you know, people wanting to know what we're going to do with that money, and so we're going to look at other projects as well. And uh, mm-hmm. so build up a nice-sized company, and, and I think... At some point, you got to think that Franco Nevada or Royal Gold is going to wake up. You know, where's their backyard? Where, where, where would they want to have a royalty, right? I mean, this right. is an unencumbered royalty with no cap. So yeah. in the next couple of years, it could be a takeover target. Yeah, it could very well be, David. Well, it does, certainly makes an awful lot of sense. And, um, you know, again, I, as I look at this market cap, uh, you know, I, I mentioned $13 million, but it would be somewhat smaller than that if you roll the shares back by another 4 million shares or so. So we're really looking at a market cap right now that's underneath your cash value, plus you have yeah. the royalties. Yeah. Well, I think so it is, is a very, very little, if any, downside uh, yeah. and lots of upside uh, at this well, stage. That's the way I view it. Cash value per share is like 46 or 47 cents so we're not even trading there and then the market wants to see the deal concluded yeah. and, and also what we're going to do um, but I, I would assume that we should trade up there and uh, this year at some point hopefully higher yeah and when do you think you might close on this transaction what's well, your best guess the, our, the, the shareholders have voted and you saw the numbers they don't lie over 99% voted in favor so it was a good endorsement so now it's just housekeeping and making sure all the paperwork's all completed. So I, I would imagine in the next few weeks it should be concluded. David, you're, uh, I think all of your properties are in Nevada right now. Would you consider going somewhere else? I mean, outside of Nevada, say North America, somewhere, or Mexico? Well, or sure, why like not? That. I mean, it depends on the project. Yeah. I mean, you're familiar with Mexico. You're operating down yeah. there uh, with the Vino. So Mexico, North America, I mean, I... Those places make me feel pretty good. Uh, Peru is a place that seems to be okay for now. Um, but anyway, I just, just so you're open-minded. and So you have a lot of uh, opportunities. I mean, certainly we're still, we've seen the bottoms, I think, in this gold market. We're, we're certainly feeling good about things now. The juniors are up very nicely. But you still have a lot of companies out there that need money and could certainly use some of that uh, $16 million you, you've got on your balance sheet now, well, U.S., we're not going to be too hasty, and we're going Good. to be conservative. And I, w- I really want to learn more about this royalty and what their plans are. I mean, and they, when they modeled it, they only modeled, they didn't model 2.7 million ounces because they're looking at this as an acquisition, right? So they're looking mm-hmm. at reality. What can they mine? So based mm-hmm. on their PEA, they cut it in half. So the uh-huh. error rate was met with only one and a half million ounces. They said, wait till we, this concludes and they start drilling. And if they go back and start drilling, uh, you know, where they did last year or below the Robertson, and our resources go to four or five or six million ounces, that royalty is going to be very attractive. And, and uh, what we do know you, we're uh, in elephant country. The pipeline is right beside us, Cortez right. Hills. We're surrounded by mines. So there's, so there's a possibility of potential. Uh, uh, there's a potential for some high-grade uh, material at depth there, I suppose. Uh, 
Carlin yeah. Trend type of uh, situation. Well, the geologist told me last year, he goes, we're, we're, we're walking away from the, the Gold Ridge option, not because uh, we, we just proved anything. It's just, you know, the budget wasn't there. Sure, sure, yeah. So now that they well, own 100% of it, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to go back and redrill it. They're going to go back and look for the elephant is what they're going to do. Yeah. So it's, uh, totally. it, it makes all the sense in the world. I was really happy to see this, David, and uh, I, I think uh, we're going to want to keep up with, uh, with, with what's, yeah. what's going and on there. Have and time to build positions because though it's not in this year's budget. They're going to do some work, but next year is when they're going to do a major program. So I would imagine our stock will start you know, going up significantly next year when people get the news of what they're going to be doing. So people have time to accumulate this year. You got several things. You got, you know, you got a bull market in gold, which Michael Oliver once again reiterated a few minutes ago. And you have a real story, you know, with a company like Barrick behind you also. So it's, uh, it's all good, they're, David. They're not I'm fooling around. They've got a no, whole team. The team that, that won the Thayer Lindsay Award in Toronto at PDAC that found Gold Rush, 15 million ounce deposit across the valley, they're the ones that are going to run it. Right. Well, they're going to be World looking for the team. elephant. What, yep. what is uh, Barrick, Barrick's producing? How many millions of ounces a year? And they've got to replace that. They've got to, they've got to find new ounces. It's, it's enormous. Well, yeah. I mean, I think they're around 6 million. They were up higher, but, you know, they got rid of a lot of mines. But this is the jewel in their crown, the, the Cortez and the Gold Strike, which is on the, uh, the um, Carlin Trend, which is about 30 miles away. But this one produce, this uh, pipeline mine complex produces a million ounces of gold annually. And I think it's, around, I think it's their lowest cost operation globally, yeah. uh, like five or $600 an ounce. Right. The Robertson is low-hanging fruit. So is there yeah. some sense, uh, David, of, of continuity from their project onto yours, possibly? We're directly adjoining, so they wouldn't yeah. even have to go on the main road. They could just put in haulage roads from our property. Yeah, yeah. No, I was there with your father years ago and, and peered over the valley there, and yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting, David. I want to thank you. Anything else you'd like to, to share with us about, about this story? Uh, just that I'm very, very excited for this new chapter in Coral, and, and I sure hope that people, you know, really pay attention to us and Barrick and what they're saying about the development, because I think we're going to add a lot more value as, as the project gets developed. So if people really want to dig into the fundamentals here, they can go to your website, uh, coralgold.com. Well, we're creating or... a new website. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's limited right now, but there's right going to be a new one coming up with more information, but... Um, I mean, like I said, if you go to CEDAR and you look at Barrick's technical report um, uh -huh. on the Cortez, I think it was in March 21st it was uh, there. You can see how huge this thing. This is the beauty of 43101 where it did us a favor. They had yeah. an independent <laughs> firm do the technical report. The information disclosed in that report is tremendous. Yeah, you don't find uh, that on their website. They, they're not obligated to report that, but it's in the technical report. So everyone should go go check it out. It's this is to get a sense of what of, of what might uh, what might be in the term in in the sense of a royalty for coral gold down the road. So, all right. Well, David, thank thank you very much. Any anything else? That's that's pretty much no, it, I guess. I want to thank everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, thank, thank you. you so. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, again, uh, folks, it's uh, twenty-seven cents U.S. Uh, thirteen million dollar market cap. Uh, the company figures when it closes to bring in uh, around 15.75 million U.S. So it's 
probably has more cash on the balance sheet than it's selling for right now, plus or relatives. So thanks very much, David, and we'll look forward to keeping up with this story into the future. Thank you very much. Folks, uh, we have to go to commercial break, but when we come back, John Rubino will be with us. We're going to talk to John about the question of the day, uh, can helicopter money overcome deflation? So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned, near-surface, Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rea Uranium project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again a good friend, um, John Rubino, who's been with us several times in the past. Um, DollarCollapse.com is where I want you all to take that, make a note of that website. If you haven't already been there, you should be going there on a regular basis. Uh, John writes, and he has lots of other uh, very interesting things, interesting articles there that are posted there. Uh, links to those articles, you can go there and uh, just think you you really need to do that if you want to keep up with what's going on in the markets and uh, some intelligent commentary about um, analyzing what is going on in the markets because Lord knows you don't get a whole lot of that in the uh, uh, in the mainstream press. So thanks for joining me again, John. Hey, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you back. Uh, we've titled our show today, Can Helicopter Money Overcome Global Deflation? That's sort of the, where we want to conclude with an answer to that, if we can get your ideas on it and um, just discuss it perhaps a little bit. But, you know, central bankers do seem to be terrified by prospects for deflation. Um, are you, in your view, are, are they right to be concerned about it? 
Oh, yeah. From their point of view, they should be petrified of it because um, deflation is the, um, the, a characteristic of a healthy, well-run system. In other words, if money is stable, the value of money is stable, and companies get more productive all the time, things get a little cheaper each year. Uh-huh. You know, that's the way it works in the tech sector and most of the rest of the private sector. But when there's too much debt in the system, as is the case for basically the whole world right now, um, deflation is a disaster because it makes debt harder to manage. If the currency is getting more and more valuable, then that means your debts have to be paid off over time in more and more expensive currency, which makes it even harder to pay them off. And we're at the point now where... Um, even with a depreciating currency at a, at a steady rate, we can't cover our debts. You know, we, we are basically a bankrupt global system right now. And deflation would speed up that process and maybe push us off the cliff into a 1930s style debt-driven deflationary crash. And that's what these guys are terrified of. And um, they're going to do anything absolutely anything that they can think of to try to avoid it. And so the question becomes, do they have the tools? You know, can they avoid it? Which I guess is the, uh, the question that we'll try to answer by the end of uh, our talk. Right. I mean, we've got negative rates. Um, shower the economy with helicopter money. Just give people pieces of paper or digits that say they're, they're worth, you know, whatever numbers you want to prescribe uh, for them, I guess. But, you know, usually you hear the bankers, uh, central bankers talking about liquidity always, John, and you're making it sound as if it's more than a liquidity issue. It's maybe an insolvency issue, a global insolvency, would you say? Absolutely. Uh, It's not a question of, oh, if we can just get Italy through the next quarter, there'll be a healthy system that can pay their bills. You know, they're, they're bankrupt, and so is most of the rest of Europe, and and Japan is heading that way fast, and China um, really borrowed more money in the last six years than any country ever in that space of time, and they're experiencing a credit crisis that could metastasize into something a lot worse. And the U.S., you know, our numbers are horrendous. If, if you just looked at U.S. debt levels in a vacuum, you'd say we were the sick country in the global economy, but because everyone else is in worse shape, we're considered to be the relative success story, but that's only relative. <laughs> you know, every, everybody is, is functionally broke. And it's only a question of when the markets discover this fact and what happens after. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a systemic problem then. It's, everybody is sick. It's not as if some are healthy and some are sick. And, um, but it, let me, you know, it seems to me like if you, if you just showered the economy with money and there was no debt to it, let's say you just printed pieces of paper and literally went over Walmart shopping, uh, shopping centers or over the parking lots of Walmart or whatever, you know, just just hand people $100 bills, endless numbers of $100 bills without any liability side to it, without any, I mean, but I guess you have a banking system, so as soon as you put that money in the bank, you've got, a, a, you got an asset and a liability, right? So it's, you can't really get away from it, but it seems like if you just gave people pieces of paper and let them, let them spend that money, that you could, you could just inflate the thing away. Yeah, well, see, that's the next stage of this process. Up till now, we've been operating with a monetary policy that begins by creating new currency and then hands that new currency to the big banks. 
And traditionally, the big banks have then spread that money throughout the system so that you get modest amounts of growth for new debt. And uh, the way you measure this process is through something called the marginal productivity of debt, which is a, a measure of how much new growth, how much new wealth you create for each unit of new debt that you take on. And that used to be kind of a one-to-one -one relationship. Back in the yeah. 60s and 70s, you know, you, you borrow a dollar and invest it, and you end up creating a new dollar of wealth. Uh -huh. And since then, though, because we've been taking on more and more debt, which has made us more and more inefficient over time, um, marginal productivity of debt has been falling. And now it's arguably at zero. In other words, if we take on new debt, um, we don't get any bang for that buck. We just end up with a lot more debt. And, and once marginal productivity of debt falls to below zero and starts um, going negative, then borrowing more money hurts rather than helps. And I think it's arguable that we're pretty much there globally right now because we've borrowed, well, we borrowed 57 trillion new dollars worldwide after the 2008-2009 crisis. And we really didn't get much for it. You know, we got some statistical increases in GDP, but regular people aren't working at, at, on a level any greater than before the 2008-2009 crisis. And um, the economies of most major countries aren't healthy by any measure. You know, in, in mm -hmm. Europe right now, you've got basically half the EU functionally bankrupt based on their most recent numbers, overall inflation is negative. You know, they're in deflation there. Japan has negative inflation and they're hardly growing at all. And China claims to be growing, but nobody believes them. They all assume China's lag. Uh, and, and so most other numbers indicate the same thing, that the global economy really isn't growing anymore. And so we, in effect, wasted all that money, but we still have to pay it back. You know, mm -hmm. it's like if you, if you borrow... Um, a huge amount of money against your credit cards and you buy a boat and a TV set and a couple of SUVs, um, you know, you've got that stuff, but they don't really improve your life all that much. And now you've got to pay off the, the debts that are related to it. So your quality of life actually goes down. And that's the situation that the global economy finds itself in. So the question then becomes, do we just kind of muddle along like Japan has for the past 20 or 30 years, where we keep borrowing more and more money and, and uh, printing more money and pushing interest rates down even further and, and nothing much happens? Or do we hit some kind of a wall where this, this game just ends and yeah. everything falls apart? And I, I think there are reasons to expect the second scenario because the, the rest of the global financial system is not Japan. Japan had some specific advantages. Well, if you call them advantages, it, it allowed them to continue to take on more and more debt for much longer than they should have been able to, that the rest of the world doesn't have. So it's a, a you know, very high probability that this thing blows up on us very soon. And so what we'll see is a new set of incredibly extreme policies in the next couple of years as the world's governments try to stave off this catastrophe. And uh, it, it could be that we'll have little squiggles like we're having right now in the market where stocks and bonds actually perform pretty well because the financial system is hearing about new liquidity coming from the central banks. But once that is proven not to work, then we'll have another crisis. This one is going to be bigger will be much harder to control and there's a good chance that it just completely spins out of government's control and uh, and it'll make 2008 2009 
look like a fairly benign garden variety recession. It yeah. would be much worse than that. Well, we're we're sorry to hear that, but I, I think what you're saying very much uh, is very much in tune with what Michael Oliver was saying in the first segment of today's show. He's seeing a blow-off phase for the T-bond, uh, the Japanese, uh, the the JGB, and the um, Bundesbond, the the German long bond. And so, his view is that you know, from a technical perspective, he thinks all three are in a blow-off phase now over the next short period of time. And that blow-offs never end well. They always end in a, uh, you know, in a in a reversal. So we can start to see interest rates rise at a time when when, uh, you know, when the world just can't. It's addicted to to zero percent interest rates. And so all of a sudden, with all that debt you mentioned, fifty-seven trillion since taken on by the uh, since two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, and then what happens, John? Then what happens when you when when the whole world spins into a deflationary implosion, if you will? No, everything becomes locked up uh, you know we saw a little of that 2008-2009 when there was no liquidity markets just seized up essentially they weren't going anywhere that especially anything to do with trade uh, that is when then we get the other kind of money what you're saying we're on the precipice now of a sort of helicopter money yeah well now helicopter money is a term for governments just creating new money and giving it directly to people you know mm-hmm. the, the image that gets used is uh, you know, Fed officials flying around in helicopters, dropping. Yeah, we see the picture of, uh, of Bernanke and his uh, little, little, tiny, little helicopter sh- yeah. shower of money. Yeah. <laughs> he looks, he looks happy, doesn't he? In that he looks happy. Yeah. <laughs> and but it, helicopter money can also take the form of tax cuts or big infrastructure spending programs where they hire lots of people to build new roads and bridges, et cetera, et cetera, or um, the direct buying of equities or houses from people. You know, they, they could come in and buy your house for twice its former market value, yeah. give you a ton of money, which presumably presumably then you'll go out and spend. Of course, yeah, I know you will go out and buy gold with it. <laughs> well, I don't know. You need a place to live. Uh, you need yeah. a place to live. But if the government's doing that, what I would find is it would be difficult to go find another house uh, at anything like what it's worth. So you just end up trading dollars because you need a place to live. But Come on out to Idaho. We'll fix it. Well, then I might get something. Like, well, but you with never know. a basement if, for your gold. But if <laughs> helicopter money might be a lot of people moving out of the cities where things are a bit chaotic and heading out in your neighborhood, I don't think that's something you want, John. So. <laughs> no, 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 it really isn't. <laughs> anyway, you you know, I'd like to get back to this idea of why issuing all this debt money causes trouble. And I think one concept that I'm sure you're in agreement with is that of malinvestment. That is, instead of capital, you have capital created out of thin air, essentially. It's been channeled into Wall Street, into the financial sector. We're seeing the stock market behave pretty pretty strong. I wouldn't say well, because it seems very abnormal the way it's behaving. But um, but but you see the wealthy, uh, the financial assets doing well still. And um, But, you know, it's like, the Austrian idea of capital is what isn't spent, and you have a stable monetary says you have a stable supply of money. You don't have a money. You don't. You're not creating money out of thin air, and so what you don't spend is capital, right? That's that's uh, legitimate savings. That's real capital. I can't understand, John, how we can expect capitalism to survive if we're not allowing price discovery of capital right now. Yeah, what we have now is not capitalism as it's defined by actual capitalists. Because when when governments manipulate interest rates, for instance, or just create lots of new money and hand it out, they're screwing around with the price signaling mechanism of the markets because entrepreneurs use 
prices bouncing around as signals to tell them how to allocate capital. In other words, if the price of something is going up, then you should build a factory to make more of it. And if the price of something is going down, then you should buy a bunch of it because it's getting cheaper. Well, those signals don't work anymore. So right. entrepreneurs have no idea how to allocate capital and they're being encouraged by governments who are pushing interest rates down to extraordinarily low levels to buy and build things that maybe there isn't a future market for. So mm -hmm. you, you get stuff like in China where, where they built um, basically a, a doubling of the global steelmaking capacity in the space of five or six years. Well, you know what? The, there wasn't a doubling of demand for steel in that time. Mm -hmm. So now we have this massive glut of steel all around the world. And so those factories that were built uh, represent largely wasted money. And that's happening globally. It's happening everywhere in every industry. And so we're creating this mountain of malinvestment mm -hmm. that will never generate the amount of cash flow needed to pay off the debt. And that means that debt is going to default at some point unless governments buy it all back and cover it with newly, pre newly created currency. And so that's really the next stage of this process. So we're at the point, Jay, where we've borrowed so much money and we're so deeply into this process of, of, um, of, of hamstringing the price signaling mechanism in capitalism that, um, that the systems that used to be perceived to work for the benefit of the average person no longer work that way. I've got a series on dollar collapse mm -hmm. .com called Why We're Ungovernable. And the premise is that debt works the same way for countries as it does for individuals, which is to say, if you borrow too much, your life spins out of control. And so the political chaos and all the terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, that we're seeing lately is a direct result of us borrowing too much money over the last 30 years. And so not only are the global, um, you know, the biggest economies in the world spinning out of control, but the political systems in these countries are also uh, behaving in ways that really seem crazy by historical standards, but are actually completely par for the course when a system is this over leveraged. So, you know, the, you, you can go down the list of Brexit and then the Austrian um, election, which was just overturned because of fraud and they're going to have to do it again. And this time the anti-EU and anti-Euro guy might win and, mm. and all the crazy terrorism that's happening lately where people are figuring out that, um, that you actually don't need a gun to, to commit mass murder. You can use a truck or a okay. knife or an ax or a machete. And, uh, and so suddenly it's open season on pretty much everyone everywhere. You know, cops are targets in the U S and, and in France, um, uh, apparently a terrorist, just broke into a French church and killed a priest with a knife before he himself was killed. And, and you know, it goes on and on. And yeah. these things are all related. That's the important thing, that, that it's well, all part of one process. Well, John, I was just thinking as you were talking about, um, you know, this, this discussion of capitalism and price discovery of capital, uh, we supposedly fought the Cold War to maintain our capitalist system, but it seems to me as if uh, we are doing it. We're destroying ourselves. It wasn't it wasn't Russia that destroyed us. It was uh, we're doing it to ourselves. Essentially, destroying our capitalist system, our our free market system, our liberties, and everything else that seem to be going down the drain with it. Huh? Oh, absolutely. Well, you, you can trace this back to 1971, of course, when Richard Nixon took the world off the gold standard. 
And mm-hmm. in effect, what he did then was um, hand every major government uh, an unlimited credit card. And, you know, people are corruptible. That's that's one of the basic tenets of libertarianism, really, is that um, um, power corrupts mm-hmm. and individuals respond to their environment in various ways. You know, we can be straight down the middle, um, honest people, or we can be kind of corrupt and uh, untrustworthy, depending on the environment. So we created an environment in which the governments of the world are encouraged to think about the present only and not about the future. And so we've all been, ever since, running up huge amounts of debt. And you can't, you can't have a functioning, cap, functioning capitalist system once you go beyond a certain level of leverage. You know, it just doesn't work anymore. That's right. the, uh, the tenet of the Austrian School of Economics is that a, a society's balance sheet is what you want to look at. In other words, how much debt's being taken on and what is that debt being used for? And we're way into what they would call the Ponzi stage of All the right. process where huge amounts of debt are being taken on for speculation. And right. Well, John, you know, it seems to me that um, that's absolutely true. And uh, the founders of our country at least understood that government uh, could be the problem. And, of course, they also defined the dollar in terms of a set amount of gold and silver to try to to try to avoid that. But somehow people wanted to have it easy, I guess, and then didn't want to uh, didn't want to succumb to the disciplines of the natural laws of, let's say, the the uh, uh, the four dimensions of time and space that were all. Uh, we're all subject to whether politicians want to admit it or not or whether people want to accept it or not. Just about out of time here. So here's the point. Here's the big question of the day then. What happens when they start this helicopter money? And we're hearing talk, you know, about, oh, well, the central banks can't do it themselves. Monetarism isn't alone can't work. We have to have fiscal uh, stimulus as well. What we're really talking about is helicopter money then. But, John, how does this play out? It seems to me that you know if we get a blow off, if we, if we get a blow off in the in the bond market, and we start to have then a rise, a raise in interest rates, interest rates that are out of the control of the central bankers, politicians and central bankers respond by sh- helicopter money, so to speak. Uh, does this thing end in a blaze of hyperinflation, or or what happens? Jay, I wouldn't even pretend to have an idea about how the uh, the details of this play out. You know, I think the only word that describes what coming what's coming is chaos. Yeah. And that can take a lot of different forms. You know, we could have a 1930s style deflationary crash or we could have a Weimar Republic hyperinflation or we could have variations of each or something brand new followed by a uh, global dictatorship. All of those things are possible in this kind of a crisis. And I think the only way that you can protect yourself from it uh, financially is to diversify into things that tend to do okay in times of crisis. You know, gold Mm. and silver will be okay either way because they, they actually went up during the depression right and they went up in the 1970s currency crisis and they've gone up in every previous currency crisis in human history so that's a place to hang to hide out but other than that i don't know i think we're writing history as we go along here and i think that um, future history books will dedicate entire chapters to the 10 years that we're living through right now um and, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be an ugly time for most people. And 
possibly a great time for the people who are positioned just right. So our goal right. should be to try to position ourselves as well as possible. All, all right, John, we'll have to let it go at that. We're out of time. Always goes so fast with you. Thanks so much for being with us again, and we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future. Uh, folks, that is all the time we have. Next week, William Engdahl will be with me to talk about uh, his geopolitical views uh, as they pertain to Russia and China, the United States, and NATO. You won't want to miss William Engdahl. We do want to thank our sponsors. Thanks, Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Coral Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barracks Cortez Pipeline Operation. Coral is well positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange.